Hey, thanks for being here this morning, especially if you're a first-time guest. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I just wanted to make sure you know we just really appreciate you joining us today. And what we do know is that many people, and maybe if you're here for the first time, you're one of those folks, uh, we get checked out online before people will actually show up here. So if that's you this morning, just want to say uh, glad that you're joining us online, and I hope that, uh, hope that we'll actually get to see you here soon as well. So for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about families because we all have one. All of us are from one or we have one. And while some of us loved our growing up years, others of us couldn't wait to get out of the house and get a fresh start. But here's what's interesting. We are all in different places. Some of us are in traditional families. Some of us are in blended families. Some of us are on second, third, or fourth marriages. Some of us are between marriages. Some of us are raising kids. Some of us are raising someone else's kids. Some of us have adopted kids. Some of us have foster kids in our homes. The family is so different, and it is so, so relevant. And with all the diversity, I don't know if you ever wonder this, what in the world do we all have in common? With all that diversity, what do we have in common? Andy Stanley was talking about that. He said, we have two things uh, in common when it comes to the family of origin. Here's the first one. We didn't have a choice, right? You, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Uh, and so, I, but I think, I wonder if you would remember this, because uh, I remember this very vividly. If you could have, when you were growing up, if you could have, you had a friend whose family you would have chosen, Right? Does, does anybody else remember that? Uh, my guess is uh, uh, you, you wanted to live with them because they didn't have any rules in their house. And, you know, they ate cereal for supper and they'd sleep in their clothes. And dad was always fun and mom was great. They're just a better family, right? And, and part of that is because family's hard. So when anyone says, especially from up front here, when, when I use the word father, that is not an emotional neutral word. There's emotions that come with that word father or mother or sister or brother. There's background. There's baggage that comes with that. There's good memories. There's bad memories. There are emotions attached. It's not easy. Family's not easy. The other thing we have in common is this. No one that you're related to is as smart as you are, right? Uh, and here's how you know this is true, okay? So just so you don't think we're making this up. At some point, my guess is probably late teens, you know, early high school, uh, you had this thought about family. Seriously, this isn't that hard, right? I mean, uh, and you wanted to gather all of your family together, all of your aunts and uncles, your grandparents on both sides, and say, listen, maybe at a family reunion, if you all would just give me 20 minutes, I can straighten this whole mess up. It's not, it's really not that hard. You, you need to take a bath. You need to stop drinking. You need to just, you two need to settle down, all right? And, uh, and you, need, you need to be nicer. And, and you just, right? if everyone was as smart as you are, it would have worked. Um, which is interesting, though, because when you go through that, uh, when you're uh, maybe middle school, early high school, as you get older, it's just the opposite. I don't know if you've ever done or said this when you're driving home and you've just had a conversation or you're driving away from home because you just had a conversation and you think to yourself, I could have done that better. Uh, I should know how to do this by now. I can, I can, I, I, I sometimes I feel like I don't have all the answers. You ever, you ever been there? Uh, the older we get, that's where we tend to go. When you're younger, you got it all. The older you get, the less you know that you know. And here's what's, here's what's difficult. When you open the Bible, 
to get some examples of what family is supposed to be, and this may throw some of you, there's almost no good examples of family in the Bible. You ever notice that when you're reading it? I mean, they're all messed up. Even, by the way, families, even with Jesus' family. So it begins in Genesis, Adam and Eve. How long did that last? You know, two chapters, and then it goes downhill. The first recorded homicide, two brothers, right? The first civil war in the nation of Israel is between King David and his son. And when you read that, listen, have you not read that story and thought, seriously, we could have, we could have changed this a whole lot easier than a big civil war, right? We could have resolved this. Our families can all feel pretty dysfunctional at times. And I hope it helps you to know that there are, <laughs> that no family, not even the families in the Bible, are perfect. So I just want to make sure that you get this. So on your notes, if you're taking notes, we are always getting there. It's the name of our series. And the point that we're trying to make through this month is none of us have arrived. You're not going to arrive. Your family is always in a state of getting there. And I'm going to show you something this morning that might surprise at least some of us. Uh, if you have your Bibles open or you have your phone, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, <clears throat> I'm wondering how many of us have read this and we don't even know what we're reading. All right. So Matthew chapter one, we're going to begin right at the beginning of Matthew chapter one. You ready? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham, as you know, was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother's name was Terah. Are you kidding? Look at these names. Who named these people, right? Uh, verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Hey, I recognize that name. David was the father of Solomon. I recognize that name. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and I don't even think I can pronounce most of these names. Verse 9. Seriously, who, who names their kids this, right? Look at those names, right? Uh, verse 11, as you're reading it, names, 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 right? Verse 13, names, names, names. Verse 15, names, names, names. Oh, look, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Well, that's not so bad to read that, is it? Uh, the, the genealogy is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's pretty exciting stuff. I know when I read it at home, I have to stop myself from getting too worked up uh, from, from all of the excitement. Um, so let me ask you this. When you read the Bible, when you're at home and you're reading the Bible, do you read the genealogies? Hands up. How many of you, when you read the Bible, you read those genealogies? Okay, put your hands down. How many of us skip them? You get to the names and you go, pass, uh, right? <laughs> or, or you've got it open and your mind is now on to lunch or, you know, some project you've got going. You know, we, like, so when we read this, it's like we treat them like they're not even there. And what looks like a mere list of names to us is actually very important to the Jewish people. And it was the most natural and even interesting and essential way to begin the story of any man's life, which, by the way, this is what this is. To be very clear, this is Jesus's family tree. The words of Matthew, the opening words of Matthew in the original language literally are the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we're looking at. Matthew's genealogy includes something 
not normally found in Jewish genealogies. I don't know if you noticed it or not. If you have your Bible open, or if you have your phone uh, to Matthew 1, I'm going to tell you, it's not actually, it's not even some, he lists some ones in there. See who I'm talking about? Look at verses 3, 5, and 6. 3, 5, and 6. Now do you see who I'm talking about? There are four women listed in Jesus's genealogy. And I'm telling you that because it's not normal to find women listed in Jewish genealogies at all. A woman back in the day had no legal rights. She was not regarded as a person, more as a thing. She was merely the possession of her father and then of her husband and at his disposal to do with as he liked. And while this may sound offensive to us today so that you can understand what's going on here, including a woman in a genealogy would be the same to us today as including our car or a pet. That's that's unfortunate, but that's the way it was. In a regular Jewish prayer, a male would thank God for three things, that he had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's the the existence of these names in any genealogy is at a minimum surprising. But when you look at who the women are, it becomes even more amazing. Their names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, although Bathsheba is not even mentioned by name. She is called Uriah's wife. So do any of those names sound familiar? I just want you to know that the people that Matthew was writing to would know exactly who those women were. So Matthew 1.3 says that to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by a woman by the name of Tamar. Tamar's story is found in Genesis 28. And if you've never heard any of this before, you are going to, when I'm done in just a couple of minutes with these stories, you're going to go, seriously, that's in the Bible? That sounds like National Enquirer. That sounds like People Magazine or something like that. So I put where you can find their stories, right, up on the screen and on your handout there so you can look them up because this is a story of deception and prostitution. Judah had chosen Tamar as a wife for his oldest son, Ur, but Ur was evil. And we don't know why, but God struck Ur dead. Ur's brother Onan became her husband because the Jewish law required that if your brother died without children, your brother had to marry so that you could have children in your brother's name for him. Uh, But Onan would not father children by her, so he struck him dead as well. Frustrated at being childless and unwilling to wait on God's timing for the right husband, she came up with a plan. She dressed like a prostitute, put a veil over her face, and waited by the road for her father-in-law, Judah. Twin sons were conceived through that union. Their names were Perez and Zerah. Perez, the firstborn, carries on the messianic line. That's a horrible story. That is terrible. Did you know someone like that was in Jesus's family line? Well, surely, seriously, something good has to be said about her, right? Don't bother looking. (laughs) There's nothing. As a matter of fact, her story kind of ends right there. There's not much more said about her in the Old Testament. The second person is Rahab. Her story is found in the second chapter of Joshua. She was a Canaanite. Canaanites were the mortal enemies of the Israelites. And after wandering for 40 years in the desert, the Israelites are preparing to enter into the promised land. And Joshua sends two spies into the city of Jericho. The officials find out they're there and they go looking for them because they're going to kill them. So these two spies hide in Rahab's house. Rahab is a prostitute. I wonder what their wives said when they got back, you know. Uh, but, uh, and so when the officials came to look, she lied to protect them. And when the Israelites attacked Jericho, they spared her life. She abandoned the gods of Canaan uh, for the one true God. She not only became a convert, became part of the Messianic line. Ruth was a Moabite. 
The entire Moabite race was a stench to the Israelites because they were a product of incest. I don't know if you know if this story is in the Bible or not. Genesis 19, Lot, uh, who was uh, Abraham's nephew, was living in a cave with his two daughters. This was after Sodom and Gomorrah. The two cities had been destroyed. The daughters were afraid that no one else would ever marry them and carry on the family name. So they got their father drunk, had children by him, and the firstborn gave her son the name Moab. He was the father of the Moabites. Ruth, the Moabite, was King David's grandmother. Matthew 1.6, fourth woman. She's mentioned without ever even saying her name. The wife of Uriah. She was the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. Fairly familiar story. According to 2 Samuel 11, she was on a rooftop taking a bath because that's where bathtubs were back in the day. And when King David saw her, he lusted after her. He called for her and their adulterous relationship produced a child. When David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he tried to cover it up by bringing Uriah, her husband, home from the war where he was loyally serving his king, King David. When he could not trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife, because he thought if he sleeps with him, he'll think it's his child. But Uriah was way too loyal to King David. He wouldn't do that while his men were out in the field sleeping in tents. So David sends a note back with Uriah to his commanding officer. Put Uriah at the front of the fighting pull everyone back so that Uriah would be murdered on the battlefield. When Uriah was killed, David took Bathsheba as his wife. The child conceived from their adulterous affair died. David was confronted with his sin and repented, but Bathsheba conceived another child, another son. His name is Solomon. He is part of the Messianic line. To which, if you're new here today... <laughs> You've got to be thinking, man, that is messed up, right? I mean, what, that's in the Bible? That's, in, that's Jesus's family line? Listen, Jesus's family tree is a reminder of something that all of us in this room today need to be reassured of. You ready? This is in your notes. Please write this down. There are no perfect families. No perfect families. I love this quote William Barclay uh, wrote, if Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable candidates, he couldn't have found four more incredible ancestors for Jesus, right? When I was in college, uh, one of my classes, our project was to do, was to research our genealogy. So I found out the Tuttles are from England. Our name originally was Tut Hill uh, when we came to America. Uh, that uh, was shortened and changed. Uh, we came to America, settled in the Carolinas, one of our relatives was hung because he was a horse thief, but he was cut down and revived before he died, and he moved to Ohio. Uh, <laughs> usually does not go in my biographical information. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I do want to say, it doesn't even hold a candle to Jesus' family. So I just want to make sure we get this on your notes. Please write this down. My family isn't perfect. My family isn't perfect. Your family isn't perfect. Our families are all imperfect in our own unique ways. You don't come from an ideal family. And if you are married and have children, you have not created the ideal family. I just want you to know that. Maybe more ideal than the one you came from, but still, uh, it's not ideal. Jesus' complicated family story isn't new. My guess is all of us have complicated families, but Jesus's genealogy is evidence that you don't have to have a perfect family 
in order to be used by God, accepted by God, and loved by God. And you need to know that. <laughs> but here's the problem that we sense. There is this uh, picture of the family that the Bible calls us to. There's this ideal that the Bible calls us to and that we all want. We want this ideal. And then there is this house that we live in where our family is, and this is where real resides. Real is here, ideal is over there, and in between there's this gap, right? There's ideal and real and a gap. And here's the thing that Jesus did over and over again. And if it's true of anything, it's true of our family relationships, male, female, and of our families. You ready? Here it is. It's on your notes. Please write this down. Jesus taught and pointed toward an ideal, but he refused to condemn those who fell short of it. Jesus taught and pointed toward an ideal, but he refused to condemn those who fell short. That, it's important to know this because that's the theme of the gospel. That is the theme of Jesus's life. Jesus would teach and point toward an ideal. And in every case, every case, this, it, with this ideal that Jesus is pointing to, he raised the standard of what was true for the culture he lived in. The most profound example of this in Jesus's ministry actually had to do with the family dynamic. And we're, so we're going to see this tension that is, so, listen up, it's so hard to live in. And yet what we see with Jesus, when you read the gospels, read looking for this, he seems so comfortable in this tension. And truthfully, as Jesus followers, we need to cozy up to it. Okay. So Matthew 19, we're going to begin in verse three. Some Pharisees came to him, came to Jesus to test him. In other words, they weren't there to learn. They came to trick him because they wanted him to look bad in front of the crowds because Moses taught this law. And if they can get Jesus to disagree with Moses's law, then that will show Jesus to be a charlatan. So Jesus is in front of large crowds and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? No fault divorce in the first century looked a little different than it does today in the 21st century. In the first century, it worked like this. If you were a man who was married to a woman that you no longer wanted to be married to, what you did, the process looked like this. You looked at her and said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. There you go. That's it. That was the process. No court case, no witnesses, no paperwork necessarily, nothing. And if the wife wanted to divorce the husband, sorry about your luck because you're not allowed to. To which Jesus said, when they asked this question, Jesus says, let me take you back to the beginning when Things were perfect. And in verse 4, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, right, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they're one flesh. So can we bring the next slide up. Therefore, what God has joined together, I want to make sure you see this. Therefore, what God has joined together, don't let anyone separate. Here it is. This is the way it's supposed to be. From the beginning, this is what God had in mind. When the garden was new, everything was perfect. Before the fruit was taken from the tree, before sin entered the world, before anything bad happened, when God created everything and it was exactly the way he wanted it to be, marriage was for a lifetime. Well... Verse 7, whoa, that's the uh, literal Greek translation, whoa, why did Moses command that a man give his wife 
a certificate. They're really, by the way, thrown on their heels here. Then why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Seriously, Jesus, it's the first century. Get up with the times. People meet people. People change their minds. I, our, this guy or this lady from Facebook that I knew, year, I just, we cut, and this, Moses was on board with all of this. Why aren't you on board with this? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way, what? From the beginning. Jesus points back to this ideal, right? We live in the real, but Jesus is pointing to the ideal and you're looking at the real, and for some reason you've lost sight of the ideal. I understand the world in which we live, and there is divorce. I'm just trying to remind you of how God designed it in the first place. Hmm. So what are you going to do with all those people who are divorced, Jesus? I'm not going to do anything to those people who are divorced. I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to give my life for them, to forgive them, to which many of us reply, well, that can't be right. I mean, seriously, doesn't it throw you off? I mean, it has to be ideal or real. It can't be both, which, by the way, is where our friends get tripped up on this. They don't think they stand a chance with Jesus <laughs> because they know they don't meet the high standard, and, and, and they think that's it which is why I think it's important when we look at John chapter 1, one of the first things we find out about Jesus is that Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. Both of them, and in that order, uh, I might point out. Grace and truth. And we read that, and it's hard to grasp that we can teach this truth, this high standard that we all need to reach toward and at the same time, extend grace. But I want you to keep in mind, because this is the gospel, Jesus taught and pointed toward an ideal, but he refused to condemn those who fell short of it. You feel the tension there? If not, let me turn it up just a little bit, because there's a decision we have to make. Are we willing to embrace an ideal in our family that we may never realize? Or are we willing to lose sight of the ideal to feel better about where we actually are? Are we willing to embrace an ideal that we may never reach? And for some of us, because we've read what the ideal is, it's already too late. You've already broken the ideal. You know you'll never get there. Will we continue to still reach for the ideal, or will we do the easy thing and say, I'm going to abandon the ideal, and I'm going to declare that what's true of me is normal? Let me give you a couple more thoughts. My family's imperfections don't change God's love for me. I don't know if that helps you make a decision or not. Doesn't make you any less loved. Doesn't make you any less valued. Doesn't make you any less seen by him. Here's the other. My family's imperfections don't limit what God can do in our family and through our family. I don't know what you thought this series was going to be about. But let me be clear from the front. I can't tell you how to have a perfect family. But what would you think would happen if you forgave your family for their imperfections? What if you decided to accept and love them exactly as they are, imperfections and all? 
What if you decided this was going to be the model from your family? To be clear, loving someone doesn't mean that you endorse what they're doing. You don't necessarily agree with all of their decisions. You know what loving them means that you do? It means you love them. Let me ask it another way. What if you gave your imperfect family the same grace God has given to imperfect you? Does that make a question a little bit more clear? It doesn't make the tension any less. It just maybe makes it a little more clear to us. So how do we do that? On your notes, your next step. And I'm asking everyone. This is everyone's next step. This isn't just someone's or a few of us. This is all of us. So if you're here this morning, if you're listening online, your next step is to pray for your family members by name. Start with your immediate family. You don't have to go back generations or way out. Start with the folks in your immediate family. Pray for them by name. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for that person in your family. Pray for that person. You know who I'm talking about? Every family has one of those. If you're not sure who that person is, look in the mirror and you'll see their picture. All right? If you can't figure it out, it's probably... So, uh, but both steps for all of us. Here's the third one, for all of us. Would you accept God's grace into your own life? Would you be willing to accept God's grace? There may be some of us here this morning who have never done that, and the reason it's so hard to extend grace is because you've never received it. You cannot give what you do not have. It has been offered. Will you accept it? And that may be your first step toward Jesus, is recognizing he loves you. He doesn't agree with everything that you do. He doesn't agree with everything that you say. He doesn't endorse everything that you do, but he loves you, and he's calling you to him, to take a step toward him. So if you've come this morning and never given your life to him, that may be it for you. This, that one may be yours specifically. Here's the last one. Will you extend God's grace to those around you? Can you extend the grace that God has given imperfect you to the imperfect family around you? And that's it. That's where we start. Your family is not perfect. I'm sorry if that shattered your bubble this morning. My guess is it didn't. The fact that it's okay <laughs> maybe does. And that there is this ideal that we shoot for and the real that we live in, and this tension in between that we have to learn to be okay with, because if we're not okay with it, we won't extend it to our friends who are trying to figure Jesus out and just figure they'll never measure up, so why try? And we've got to live within that, which is why every week we come to a time of communion, because we come to remember that God's grace was given to us. We will hold these things that remind us, the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body, the cup that reminds us of Jesus' blood, this terrible cost that God paid to forgive us, this terrible cost for the sin problem that we had. He didn't, but he paid our price anyway. And we're called to do more than remember it. We remember what was extended to us so that we can remember we are called to extend it to others. This is about receiving and extending. And every time we remember, we take these emblems, we are saying one more time to God, thank you. I remember. I belong to you. 
and I will extend the grace to others that you have extended to me. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for who you are. And thank you for loving who we are. Because of each of us in this room this morning, we all know, some of us, we remember very well the little messes that we have made this week. Some of us may remember the big messes we've made this week. And none of those stop you from loving us. Your word says that when we were up to our eyeballs in sin, that's how you demonstrated your love to us, that you allowed Jesus to die on our behalf. When we were in the thick of it, not when we were on our way out, not when we were getting cleaned up, when we were in the middle of it, you demonstrated your great love for us by sending your son to die for us. God, thank you so much because we, and we want to remember that and we want to hold on to it, but it's not just for us. We want to remember this so that we can extend it, first of all, to our families. And so God, this morning, may we be diligent about doing what we need to do so that you can continue to do what only you can do in our life and in the lives of those around us. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.